Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. That oh so polite Commonwealth Club applause. Yeah, very polite. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, you're going to be well behaved. Well, well known as the Commonwealth Club <laughs> golf clap. <laughs> you have to hit them with the, I can't hear you. Um, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to uh, welcome everyone to tonight's Commonwealth Club event. My name is Carvel Wallace. I'm an author, podcaster, and uh, your moderator for tonight's uh, discussion. It is my pleasure to introduce our speakers, W. Kamau Bell and Kate Schatz, the authors of Do the Work, an anti-racist activity book. Uh, w. Kamau Bell is a sociopolitical comedian and host and executive producer of the Emmy award-winning CNN docuseries, The United Shades of America with W. Kamau Bell. He also directed and executive produced the four-part Showtime documentary, We Need to Talk About Cosby. Last time the word Cosby will be followed by applause. He is an ACLU artist ambassador for racial justice and serves on the board of the the directors for Donors Choose and the advisory board of Hollaback. Kate Schatz is an activist and best-selling author of the Rad Woman book series. She is the co-founder of Solidarity Sundays, a nationwide network of over 200 feminist groups. And Kate is also an educator and has taught women's studies, literature, creative writing at UC Santa Cruz, San Jose State, Rhode Island College, and Brown University. Ooh, wow. Mm. And a quick reminder to those of you in our audience, if you're here with us in San Francisco and you have a question for Kamau or Kate, please write it on the question cards um, that you have been given. And if you're watching along with us online, wherever you are, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll get to them when we are about 15 minutes left in the program. So first, let's give a warm round of welcome to Kamau and Kate. Um, so I'm so happy to be here, and I'm, I'm so excited by this book, and um, I'm going to have to ask questions that everyone has asked you, which is so I apologize in advance, but um, this book is written like... Um, it's written like a scholastic activity book, like when you take your kid to the dentist and they, and you're like, here, let's figure out what to do, you know, like let's like solve this maze. But in this one, you're like, let's solve the maze of like white supremacy. And um, and I wonder what went into you guys taking that approach to this book, this activity workbook, kind of like almost child like children's book approach. Mm-hmm. How'd you get there? Uh, no one's asked that question yet. Oh, really? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> it had me. <laughs> Um, you know, when we, uh, so when we decided to write a book together and it was, it was Kamau's idea to write a book and I said, yes, because why would I not say yes, uh, to that, uh, especially during the pandemic, uh, when everything was really wild, uh, and also kind of boring and monotonous. So, uh, he suggested that we write a book and, um, we got on a zoom call together to brainstorm, um, and we, we wanted to do something around, uh, you know, around anti-racism. This is right in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Um, and I had the idea for, uh, an activity book, uh, and, and uh, so uh, did you. I had the idea for an activity <laughs> and then, book. And so did I. Yes. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. We <laughs> Look, both were like, I have a crazy idea. <laughs> yeah. And we both had the crazy idea of activity book. And and I think and that was and I and I that had come to me at some point and I thought that it was ridiculous and that he would think that was ridiculous and then he also had that idea and 
I think a lot of it was that it was during the pandemic and we're both parents of young kids. Mm. So we were home with our kids and mm -hmm. we had been for months. And mm -hmm. I felt like we, I was so up close and personal with my kids and watching them struggle on Zoom and he hear, being in the same room as I tried to work and mm -hmm. hearing the teachers trying to get engage them mm -hmm. and was just really thinking, you know, like, how do you get how do you get people, how do you get kids to do work that they don't want to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like you make it fun, you make it a game, mm -hmm. like you get them to do math by putting rocket ships mm -hmm. and it's a whole thing. And mm -hmm. then uh, it's like, yeah, how do we get all these adults to grapple with white supremacy and what you can actually do about it? Because, um, you know, how can we get their attention so mm. we can use these activities? Yeah, and I think, and in, in connected to that was after the murder of George Floyd, all these anti-racist books went to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And we had this sort of conversation about like, okay, people are buying them, but are they going to read them? <laughs> and after the, and even if you do buy them and read them, do you know what to do next? And so I think that mm. like, and there's a lot of great books out there. I mean, and so I think it was just the idea of like, I know from United Shades and your work as an activist that you, that you people, you want to explain the problem to people, but you also want to get people to the work, to the homework, to mm. the, to the solving of the problem. And so it was like, how do we connect them from these books to the work or how do we, are these, or could this be a way into those books that when you read them, you have a bigger context for how to solve these problems. By show of hands, how many people in this room bought an anti-racist book in the year 2020? I went hands all the way up. How many of you read from the beginning of the book to the end of the book in its completion? Keep your hand up. How many of you are lying? How many of you are lying? <laughs> Keep your hand up. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, no, I think that's right. And I think that there, I think that there, there's this thing about racism. I mean, that's what struck me about the book is that you're like, let's make racism fun, which is or like dealing with racism fun, not racism itself. I mean, per, to be clear, my whole career has been about making <laughs> yeah. racism. Well, no, that's my point though. So like, okay, so I have a 19 year old son and I was, I have this experience that I want to share that came up to me when I was reading this book, which is that I showed him the Chappelle show for the first time, like the old one from the Bush era. And as a 19 year old Gen Z, like activist, like was organizing protests, was out in the streets. He watched like 20 minutes of the Chappelle show and said, Boy, Dad, this is so weird because they're ha they're like it's funny to them this stuff about racism, and it just dawned on me. Oh wow, he's because he's born in two thousand three. He's from a place where there's not a lot of fun around. You can't be you can't make jokes about it, and everyone here is reacting like that's a bad thing, which it may or may not be. But it was interesting to me that when I was reading your book, it was coming from the perspective of like there's a certain playfulness. Like let's actually make this not a big thing, and so. It, that just had my wheels turning about, and I want to hear you guys talk about this. Like, why do you think it's become so serious? Why, why are there so few playful approaches to racism in 2020 compared to, say, 2003 or 1995 or what have you? Um, as the comedian expert, I'll handle mm. this one, Kate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I think – actually, I think there is a lot of fun around racism. It's just some of that fun is uh, not helpful. I think social media and the internet, like we can pull up some memes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is actually like it's all coming from all sides. Uh -huh. It is like there's just a sense of like <coughs> that there's there. It used to be you could have a very curated experience of of your content because there was like only a certain number of right. channels. You only watched those channels. You didn't watch the other channels so that you didn't see the other stuff. Now, especially if you're 19, you're seeing everything mm -hmm. at all times mm -hmm. and so there's just a sense that there's a lot more to wade through and and the way that the internet works you're we're generally more activated by things we don't like than things we like yeah and so you're seeing the stuff you don't like at a higher rate maybe than you're seeing the stuff that you do like mm. 
So I, for, I feel like for me, the idea is that there's a lot of stuff out there, but there's just almost so much stuff that you can't, that it, it, it keeps us all in a state of like anxiety, of like ah, all the time. Right. And so I think that like, and part of this is also, I think like so many things that we're experiencing now is because we haven't really, we're all sort of walking around surrounded by the ghosts of COVID. Mm-hmm. And we're all sort of like, time to get back to normal, everybody. Mm-hmm. And so we're all raw. And I think that that, so the, the idea of this, but the only way to like, I learned as being a comedian is if people are laughing they're actually, you know, they're paying attention. Mm. So if you, if I, and I'm not smart enough to write a serious book about racism, but if I were to, mm. you can sort of pretend to be paying along to serious things and nobody knows if you're paying along, paying attention. Mm-hmm. But with something like this, if we make you laugh and engage, you will keep turning the page. You will, hopefully you'll connect to the work in a different way. So for me, I don't think people are always like, how do, how do you sit down and make racism funny? I don't sit down to try to make racism funny. I make racism funny to survive. Mm. 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 And and I would add that I, I think that for white people in particular, I mean, it's, you know, it's terrifying, the idea of being playful and making mm-hmm. jokes about racism. I mean, we're not supposed to. That's not, a, you know, d- like, don't do that. <laughs> um, I, I would not write this book by myself. I would not, as a white person, I would not write a... Uh, a a funny, playful activity book about racism on my own. I mean, this was a, you know, this was a, a, a partnership. And out of what I appreciated is being able to use humor to, I think, hopefully engage white people and, and, and like bring them into something. Cause I think humor is so effective, exactly what Kamau said, because people are getting it, they're engaging, um, it let, people let their guard down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of the defensiveness and the anxiety that a lot of white people have around talking about this, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they can, I think that they can engage and they can kind of relax um, and, and approach it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to, to, to do that and to use the playfulness. Um, and, and I think that we, throughout the book, we're always kind of like, walking, we're walking a lot of really fine lines and kind of jumping back and forth. And I think it's what enables us to have really, really serious moments. And we were always interested in that play between, you know, there'll be like a crossword puzzle and then you'll turn the page and it's like a really serious, intense conversation about police violence. Right. Right. Well, that, I mean, I feel like when I grew up, I feel like for me and my family, yes, we made like racism was the source of humor because it was a way we survived. Everyone made jokes about it. We cracked each other up with various stories. Um, and I wonder, I guess part of what I um, want to hear about is like each of your personal processes with like getting to the point of, and I'm sorry I have to say this word, I'm just using it because it actually works, wokeness. Like, how, like each of your processes with like how, because none of us are born this way. So how did you personally get to a point where you felt like you had something helpful to offer to the world about how to overcome our, your particular privileges uh, in three uh, minutes or less. You mean in, you mean in life, not just in, in life, the book. In life. In life. Uh, uh, <laughs> I I was raised with what is called a black mom. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's here tonight. <laughs> uh, give it up for my mom sitting here. Uh, <laughs> sometimes she stands. She's not standing tonight. Uh, Oh, that's yeah. And I always say, like, I was born in the early '70s, and I feel like that when people talk about the post-racial of the Obama era, I feel like the '70s was like actually the post. There was another post-racial mm-hmm. era because it was mm-hmm. weirdly we thought the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. meant racism was over, 
Mm-hmm. And so and the, so it was this sense of like, oh, the civil rights era fixed everything. Mm-hmm. And now everything's – and so I grew up with this sort of like, you know, eracism, all mm-hmm. those sort of fun mm-hmm. things. Right. And then, then I turned like 13 and was like six feet tall. And it was like – and I was out in the world in Chicago. And it was like, oh, no, there's still racism. Right. And so for me, like – I have a mom who lived through the was born in Indianapolis in the can I say in the thirties in the thirties uh, <laughs> and like had lived through like I always say my mom lived through all the black stuff from history except for slavery right. that was the one <laughs> thing she but everything else she's lived through and so I heard these stories from her and thought man that was the past mm-hmm. oh you guys really did a lot of things mm-hmm. and then but as a as a teenager growing up in the world realizing oh racism is still here and so I had somebody I could go to every day and talk to about this mm-hmm. stuff which so. It was, and also her family business, our family business was literally like she collected books of famous black quotations. So blackness was just the wallpaper of the mm-hmm. house. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I used to have a joke I did in my act that I was 11 years old before I realized that a cracker was also a delicious snack. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> Not everybody gets that, but it's a good joke. <laughs> and so it was just like, and also hearing black people rant about racism and then laugh about it in the same breath. Mm-hmm. So for me, it wasn't so much about like, and then I and then I moved to the Bay Area in my mind, like in the late nineties, in my mind went of just like who oh, like in Chicago at that time felt like a very black and white world. And then coming out here it felt like it's there's a lot more going on than that. I was like, uh-huh. Filipinos. I never really even knew that was a thing. <laughs> Seriously, I came out, I didn't know, I just didn't know. So and then it becomes about like for me it's not so much about it's about learning in real time for in front of an audience. Uh-huh. So that's what United Shades is about. A lot of this book is is either Kate sharing things with me or a collaborator sharing things. Mm-hmm. It's about like showing the process of like you can learn. It doesn't have to be painful, and then you can figure out how to do things better. And that's so I'm not even I don't even think about like is like showing people how to showing people how to be good or whatever, or showing them how to overcome. It's like no, I'm in this world too, trying to figure out how to get to the try to get to the next era. <laughs> Hopefully, that's better than this one. And I'm and my I realize my role is to do it in real time in front of people. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your journey? Yeah, you know, it, it made me realize, like, to connect to the last question about using humor and playfulness. I think that I I grew up in the Bay Area, um, and I was kind of like that woke activist kid from a really early age. And I didn't come from uh, an activist family. And I definitely, I grew up in San Jose. I did not grow up in like an activist community by any means. Um, I think I I always say animal rights and the environment were my gateway drugs to activism. (laughs) It was like, I was really into trees and like against animal testing when I was in sixth grade. But I was also a kid who I really loved the news. I loved current events. I just like really interested in what was going on. Mm -hmm. And um, I was probably in high school when I started to connect um, the environmental work that I was doing to racial justice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, I've, I had a lot of classic Bay Area woke experiences. You know, I went to UC Santa Cruz and Mm -hmm. I, I basically learned what you, what everybody fears their kid will learn. You know, Mm -hmm. I became like a women's studies major. (laughs) I read Angela Davis and I understood the intersection of race, class, gender, and power. Um, And that, that was it. You know, I mean, I got to study with incredible people, et cetera. But I think one thing that I was always doing from a young age, because I definitely, it's I'm thinking of your son growing up in this time, mm-hmm. like I was the only kid that cared about this stuff in my school. Mm-hmm. And I was constantly trying to get 
other people to give a shit. Mm. Um, like that was like my thing was right. like, I, you know, right. come recycle with me, come to this March, come <laughs> to this thing, like sign this petition about Redwoods. Like I was so earnest. Um, and I was really angry. And I think I also, but I realized early on that if I was going to get other people to care, I had to not just be angry. I had to not just be super serious. And I, I needed to use my kind of social skills and mm. One of my skills, I think, is a sense of humor. I'm a confident speaker, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I'm creative. So I could kind of use those things to try to get other people at my high school or my middle school or, you know, in my community to engage and care. So I think mm -hmm. I've always been interested in, like, different techniques for engagement. You know, how do we get an audience? How do we get people? And I think about this. I taught high school, you know. Mm -hmm. How do you get a bunch of teenagers mm -hmm. to give a shit about what you're saying? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like, you've got to make stuff interesting. I think about that as a parent. How do I get my kids to listen? to me you know right. I, I um you know you have to be creative so i think from an early age i was very woke very serious very passionate but um knew that i needed to figure out ways to get people to kind of come along with me well it's interesting because we it feels to me and we were talking about this a little bit backstage that we're at a time where there is i think a fairly significant backlash to wokeness both as a as a concept and that's Part of what it is that, is that turning it into this caricature, but also the actual process of in, like engaging in the world with an attempt to bring about care and an attempt to have like shared care for all people that that in and of itself is experiencing tremendous backlash. Um, and, you know, I remember having to explain to my kids exactly what happened the night of November 9th, 2016. And that was, you know, this or November 8th, whatever that was. And they were, you know, 10 and 12 at that point. And from that point forward, it's like I had to keep explaining, well, you know, there are people who don't actually want everyone to care about everyone. And now they have a lot of power and they want to make sure that, like, there's not too much caring going on. You know what I mean? Like, we got to limit the amount of caring that's going down. And so having to just, like, live under those auspices. And it makes me wonder how you maintain optimism in your work, given the size and force of the counterwork. Hmm. It's funny when you said explain to your kids, you have like, cause my kids are younger than yours. So hmm. I have a 10 year old and eight, no, an 11 year old, <coughs> an eight year old and a four year old. And on the night of the midterms, I had to explain to my 10 year old, my eight year old, Herschel Walker. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, he's black. He's against black lives matter. Oh, it gets worse than that. <laughs> you think that's a problem. <laughs> uh, he also thinks China's stealing our good air. Uh, <laughs> So I, it's those same conversations, but I feel like, so for me, like humor is the way I lighten the load, but I couldn't say that I would define myself currently as an optimist, mm. but certainly without humor, I don't get out of bed in the morning. Like I don't get without humor and my kids needing to get to school. Uh, <laughs> but like, I, there, it's like, I couldn't, I don't know how I would be able to like walk through the world without a sense of irony and a sense of humor and a sense of sarcasm. Uh, cause, cause just to sort of keep my own spirits up, but I think optimism is like, I mean, if you are, I, good, thank you. But, uh, I really find that like the only way I could even sort of point towards optimism is if I do the work and is mm -hmm. if I do create work in the world that I feel like is productive. Mm -hmm. You know, I always joke that like one day I'm going to just make a documentary about noodles. We aren't, we aren't like in a good enough place in society for me to do that. It's like, so I have to make documentaries about the, about the hard things. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, I just don't think that like, I get yeah, optimism is definitely, I was like, I was thinking my mom handed me like the black baton mm -hmm. and, and it was lighter than when it was handed to her. 
Like she's like, we did a lot. Can you? And I feel like we are in danger of me handing my kids the black baton, and it's going to be heavier. Mm-hmm. So I really feel like it's like so. Optimism is like I definitely. Uh, it's funny, Kate. This happened again. I'm going to tell a story that you've heard before, but this is the second time it's happened. I was at the I was at the gym. I was in the in the in the in the room in the lock, locker room naked. Person walks up to me. Oh my God! It's W. Kamal Bell. This is what happens. <laughs> And they go, you know, so much is going on. I don't know. Should I? I just feel so nervous about everything. Is are things as bad as I think they are? Yeah. Like that's my answer. Like it's like, and it may be worse than you think it is. So like we can't sort of. I, people always want me to tell them that like, no, I've traveled around and really people just hug more. <laughs> that used to think that way, <laughs> but then that night happened. You told them what you talked about your kids. I recognize how that you know how dire things are right now, and so. The only time optimism come in, comes in is if I feel like we're actually doing the work. Mm. I like that this side is trying to start applause breaks and the rest yeah. is like, we're not sure yet. But I appreciate that. I appreciate that this side or like <coughs> two or two, one or two people on that side. There's some of this. I see some. I hear some of that. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited for your documentary about noodles, though. I am, too. I will watch that. Coming 2097. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I don't, I don't actually, I don't do any of this, uh, you know, because I'm an optimist, uh-huh. right? Like, I do it because I'm, I mean, if, if I am an optimist, I'd say I'm a really practical optimist, mm-hmm. but my motivation is not optimism. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I do this and I engage with this work because I think I absolutely have to. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, I'm, I'm. I feel like a realist. I see what's going on mm. in this in this world. I mean, I, th- I think there's no other option. So this isn't, mm-hmm. you know, for me, like being activism and, and writing a book like this and having these conversations, it's not because I'm like hopeful. I believe in some like beautiful, magical future. It's because I actually see what's going on around us. Mm. And I think it's my, you know, my obligation, my duty, like a mm. necessary thing, um, you know, and I... And I, I think, but to the question of like, how do I, you know, and I get this too, like, how do I go about the day? How do I move mm-hmm. forward? I mean, mm-hmm. one, I, you know, I don't really have a choice. And I do think having kids makes it like, you know, right. like <clears throat> they're cute. They're funny. They still, they still believe in a beautiful, magical future. And I really want that for them. Um, but I, I, I also think that because I've written a lot and studied a lot of history, um, I mean, I, I think about that a lot. You know, I, I pay attention to American history. I study it, I write about it, I think about it. And, you know, I, I think it, it just, I think it's so important to have, a, have that historical perspective and that long view, um, to be able to kind of see the moment we're in as, as one in a series of moments. And, and that sometimes that just actually makes people feel really horrible. <laughs> like, um, when you think about how far we actually have not come or how cyclical our, yeah. our, our patterns and our, our, you know, this world is. Um, but I also think it's kind of a, it's humbling. It's like thinking about how we're all just like microscopic specks in this like vast universe, right? Like we're in this one particular moment and like a large, uh, a, a huge series of particular horrific moments um, in this country's history. And, uh, you know, it's, but it's instructive. And I think it can also just be, for me, it's humbling when I get too overwhelmed and obsessed with thinking like, we're in the worst moment ever. Um, you know, I think about that with elections, just all the rhetoric around, you know, I feel like every, every democracy's on the ballot. You know, it's like, I know every election has been really important, but this one right here is the, you know, and it's like, there's a lot of truth to that. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm, I I don't want to downplay how horrific our moment is. Um, but we've been in a lot of horrific moments and there are, you know, there's, there's a lot to be 
kind of gained from from thinking and studying that. Well, it kind of ties into something that I've been thinking about with both of you, which is the way your previous work is like uh, prepared you for this book. And Kamal, you talked a little bit about like going around the country and talking to people and how you know everyone wants you to say, well, you know, because there is this kind of like cottage industry of certain people, I'm not going to name any names, going around and saying like, oh, everyone's the same, we just need hugs, and I think people get paid a lot of money to say that. And but um, Some of them don't, though, which is crazy. Oh, that's <laughs> a whole other story. But, um, but can you, you, Kate, like those books, the Rad Women books, are like, we're such a fixture in my household and with my kids. And it makes me wonder, like, you spent so much time studying, like, people throughout history who worked against tremendous odds. And I wonder how that, how spending time with those women, like, both like helps you in general and shows up for you in this book in specific? Oh, so much, you know, I mean, so for folks who don't know, I wrote a series of books um, with Miriam Kleinstahl about um, kind of remarkable women from history. Um, and today, uh, rad American women and rad women worldwide. And I wrote, and they're for, for young readers. Um, so they're short kind of capsule biographies of, um, with a, with a focus on, um, women whose stories we don't often hear, um, mm-hmm. and women of color, margin, people from marginalized communities who did really remarkable things. And, and in the face of just like tremendous opposition and horror and brutality. And so it's, that is a huge, you know, anytime, you know, I'm like, if they can, like, it sounds cliche, but like, if they can do it, I, I can handle this, mm-hmm. you know, like we can make it through this particular moment, you know, and I, I actually remember when I was working on Rad Women Worldwide, I was, I was really stuck. Like I was having like a writer's block moment. I was overwhelmed. I have a deadline. I was like, I don't think I can finish this story. And it was like, it was one about like uh, Marie Curie and, and her daughter, Irene, and, and the work that they did specifically about the work they did together on the battlefields of World War One. Mm. And Irene Curie's like 17 years old. And she's like this French teenager and she's dragging her mom's x-ray machine onto these battlefields to try to convince these military generals to use this machine. And there's like people dying around her. And I'm, and then I'm reading the letters that she's writing to her mom and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm good. Look, I can probably I can, do this. I can write two more paragraphs. Like I'm fine. <laughs> um, so, so I mean, for me, that kind of stuff is it's, it's instructive because you can actually think about the strategies that people used and their approaches and how they did things. But it's also just like mm. immensely humbling and, mm-hmm. you know, come on, who am I to complain? Like, look right. at what these people have done. Right. Um, what was difficult for each of you in writing this book? That it couldn't be like 10,000 pages long. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, there were so many things that we just were like that. It was like we were, we constantly kept trying to, every every final draft that came from the publisher, we were like, well, one more thing. <laughs> uh, and so it was just that we couldn't, there's just so many different angles you want to get in here and so many different ways. And also so much more information. And, and the problem with being <coughs> interse- trying to have an intersectional approach is you can't be intersectional enough at some point. Like you're like, do we get, you know, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I think the fact that it couldn't be, I mean, it was supposed to be whatever it is. It's longer than it was supposed to be. Uh-huh. It was longer than it was like, it's like, it was supposed to be like 150 and it's like 172 pages. or something. Uh-huh. So, but that we couldn't, that it just couldn't do everything we needed it to do. I think at some point you just have to throw, I think at some point I do this with all my work. At some point it's just due and you have to turn it in. And you're like a little bit. You're like, I hope they're grading on effort because you know that you're like, <laughs> you know, you put the effort in. And I feel so like at some point, I feel like with all the work, I'm just like, hopefully they're also, hopefully the audience will also see, will feel, not that you want to look like it was worked over, yeah. but will feel the care and the and the and the attempt because you. So the, that can be a part of the uh, look, the judgment too. Mm. You know, another thing, I think one thing that was really hard for me, like I just said, my other books have really been about history and have mm-hmm. been about things that already happened, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, not that those matters are are settled by any means, and it's I like reflecting on 
you know, how, how those histories have impacted where we are today. But this book was very much in real time. Um, I mean, we always tell the story that we had a, we had a huge deadline on January 6th. Wow. We did not meet that deadline, people. Um, you know, it's funny you don't, you don't have to say the year. That's, right? It's become like one of those dates, like January 6th. Yeah. And, you know, and so, I mean, we were writing, um, we wrote this book, you know, basically like fall 2020 and then like the first half of 2021, you know, and it was like during the, fi- you know, the, we were, we wrote it when we were unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. We were wearing masks and we wanted to write outside, but the fires were happening. The air quality was too bad and our kids were still home and, you know, but also just, the, as the news and the world just kept happening as we were writing. So that was a challenge to really want to, to feel really timely. And it was just like things would happen and we'd be like, God, it's got to go in the book. Yeah. Like there's a January 6th happened at some point. Like we need a January 6th reference in here and you're flipping through the book. Where can it go? Oh, there it goes. And so there is one. Mm-hmm. In there. Uh, but yeah, like I, I always just the, the nature of the way that I work, it's always about like topical. So for me, it's like, there's always a sense to try to make it feel as relevant as possible. And that's why I really appreciate it, Kate. Now, what, you said your books are for young readers. As an adult, I take offense at that. Because uh, <laughs> when I read your book to my young reader, I was like, oh, whoa, whoa. Right. That's the point. That's yeah. one of my strategies. They're for, they're for young readers or adults who like bite-sized things. Yeah. Like, it's, like, it's like woke BuzzFeed. Is that a thing to say? Uh, uh, no, but it's so like for me, I just want people to – if you don't have to have kids to, to really get a lot out of her books. And uh, so, yeah, I think it, for me it was just about like always trying to – Knowing, I think for me, I always have. There's two. I'm I'm thinking about the audience that the that the book is that we're the core audience, and then uh, and then we also talk a lot about the audience of our friends who are activists who are actually doing the work who are going to pick this up and be like, what did these two do? Yeah, you know, and yeah. I, yeah. So that's we're always thinking about like wanting our friends to pick it up and go. They may not need this as much as the core audience, but hopefully they will. Res- we want them to respect. It. Well, who, I mean, who is the book for? I mean, I know that everyone always says my book is for everyone. But you're not. You can't say that. No. So who is the book truly for? Like this book is for white people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone, all white people. Um. Yeah. yeah. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I mean. Very specifically, I think this book is for white people who uh, want to know what to do. Uh huh. Um. It's for white people who uh, like know something's kind of wrong. Like who know mm-hmm. that there's racism. Their spidey um, sense is going on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and maybe there's like a spectrum, right? And I and I and this is. You know, I, I appreciate the nuance of that question. Like, you know, not all white people uh-huh. are the same. You know, like, uh, we have some things in common. But like, this is <laughs> this is not this is. But like, I don't think of this as like you know because I think I always feel the poor the poor maligned uncle at Thanksgiving, right? That trope. Like, people mm-hmm. are always like, "What do I say to my you know like mm-hmm. my MAGA uncle?" Like, mm-hmm. this book is not really for your MAGA uncle. Like, I think there's a lot of people that are really really dug in, right? Like this, mm-hmm. I don't think this book is like gonna change you know maybe he'd like it i don't know but i think this book you know as for um it is for people who know what's going on who see it but like don't really know what to do like right can't make sense of it yeah and i think that we say that but it's also like as a black person who worked on this book i learned a lot working on this book so but i think we want to be clear that like there's a really sort of 101 approach to this book that every everybody can go back and take be an expert in something and take the one hundred and one class and go oh I've I've, I've things some things I learned here or I forgot about that I learned but it is really for people who no matter what who had that moment in twenty twenty when the racial reckoning was happening and mm-hmm. and there were the march in the streets and you were like and you thought that turning your Instagram square black was the was the battle. Mm-hmm. 
or you thought that like buying the book and putting it next to your bedstand was the battle or, or reading the book that you're because now we're in this thing where like there's so many corporations who were like sort of put up Black Lives Matter things in 2020 mm-hmm. that they have looked back and gone and go they didn't spend they didn't do anything with the money they raised they didn't do this they've also re- contributed to causes that are uh, directly against the idea of Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. so for me it's like it was that was the season of of woke <laughs> but that season has passed as we see you know just yesterday 36 Republican senators voted against uh, making uh, like marriage equality and interracial marriage the law of the land. I, 36. Yeah. And if you look at the list of 36 senators, many of them are the Republican senators who we were told are like the new breed. Right. You know, you know, so it's, thank you for the very, I'm sorry, God, we got a San Francisco hiss. Uh, <laughs> but like, so this is like, you know, the, the, the barbarians are at the gate. The call's coming from inside the house. Whatever, whatever you can say, it's happening in real time. Like, this is not a, this is not a theory. This is like, you know, this, this, this and other things are part of the work. And if we don't do the work, we're going to look up in a short period of time and find out this country has fundamentally changed. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, this question of um, people who had an awakening in 2020, because it's hard. I, I would say personally for me, I'm always like, if it took till 2020 for you to be, then I don't know that you're like, I don't have a lot of faith personally. And so how do you keep faith that people could have been like somehow magically blind to everything prior to 2020, prior to, prior to George Floyd? And then how, like, how do you allow yourself to believe that there's still opportunity for transformation there when so much has been ignored before that? I mean, can I that's a longer way of phrasing oh, yeah. optimism. No, no, no. Because I've seen it myself. <clears throat> Like I have I mean, not. You didn't believe racism existed before. No, but in other sides, I was pretty sure racism existed. <laughs> but like I was, you know, I lived in Chicago. I think I knew. I think I knew one gay person when I moved out here when mm-hmm. I was twenty three, and like it was like, and and it was, and everybody was like, "That's she's gay." Uh huh. Like that was the that was our conversation. I moved out to the Bay Area, and so I had the whole shift around uh, LGBTQ plus issues. Uh-huh. The fact that I say LGBTQ plus issues is a part of that. Uh-huh. The way in which I think the way the number of of gay friends I have and people in my life, it's like that shift. I felt myself go from a person who was like, who was like certainly homophobic in the sense of like I'm not comfortable. Uh-huh. I don't know how to I don't know how to talk to a gay person uh-huh. to a person who writes a book with a queer person. Know you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah look at me. <laughs> and there's any no, I remember. And the, yeah, look at me. Cookie, I'm one of the, give him a cookie. I'm one of the good ones, <laughs> not like the rest. Uh, and I've seen it happen around other issues. I, you know, a lot of this is about the barrier for me. Like I was, I got invited by Jeff Chang, a great barrier author, and Fabiano Rodriguez, a great, very activist and artist, to go to me and Nato Green and Janine Brito got invited to go to a, a culture strike, a delegation of artists who go to the, the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona. And learn about the border. I didn't know anything about that stuff. Mm. I didn't know anything about it. I, and that's where I heard that uh, immigration activists called Obama the deporter in chief because he had deported yeah. more people than George W. Bush. I didn't know anything about that stuff. Yeah. So I have seen it happen in me as a person who's like, not, you know, it's, it's sort of like my friend Martha was like, don't compare yourself to the worst example. I think a lot of times we're like, well, I'm not a MAGA person, so I must be okay. Right. And so for me, it was like, no, compare yourself to the version of yourself that you want to be. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like I've I've seen it happen to myself. And then just on a very other sort of personal level, my mother-in-law is white. That means I'm married to a white person. For anybody who's not sure what that means, my mother-in-law, who I met, who I didn't have, who was like, like we didn't have conversations about race or racism at all, was like, I need four copies and I need them all signed. 
And she was probably somebody who was like an Obama Democrat who like voted yeah. for. But she, I have seen it happen. She sewed a pussy hat back when that was the thing. Uh-huh. I've seen her get radicalized by this current version of America, and a lot of that I feel proud about comes from me. <laughs> so I've seen it happen. It doesn't mean everybody's going to move at the same pace. It doesn't mean mm. people aren't going to have a stop and start. But I know it can happen. It just it just isn't happening quickly enough. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's 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 well earned skepticism that you have there. You know, mm. and I agree. Like I. I you know, it makes me think, oh my God, there was like a headline in the New York Times a couple of days ago of like uh, about these like conservative Jewish leaders who after Trump's dinner with the like head white supremacists mm-hmm. were like, maybe not <laughs> Trump, right? I'm like, like, oh, oh, it took you until now? Really now? Okay. <coughs> right? So yeah, similarly, like really it took you until 2020 to, you know, like that's right. really, so I mean, and I, what I'd say to that is, again, not like an optimism. I don't think that all those people that had that awakening have transformed. Mm. I mean, it's pretty obvious that they haven't. Um, but I do believe that people can learn and that people can grow. Um, and I and I think that, that ideas um, and beliefs can shift. And I think that, you know, even, you know, so, yeah. And, and ultimately what really matters, right, like is just is people's actions, right? Like, mm-hmm. again, like your Instagram posts really don't actually mean much, right? Like what mm-hmm. you, you know, like what matters is how people are acting and what people are doing and, and, and how consistently people are acting um, and how consistently people are, are, are showing up mm-hmm. and how consistently they're, they're actually making a continued effort to, to learn, right? Cause you don't just like have an awakening and realize a bunch of stuff and then like, you're good, right? It's, it's actually like, that should be the first thing that happens and in a, in a, ongoing journey of trying to learn um right so some you know i think some folks are still doing that um you know I hope and i think there's enough people who want to learn i trust in that fact again i'm not trying to get everybody either and i don't think trying to get everybody is a worthy cause i think it's about this sizable portion of people uh-huh. who feel like whatever their life is their life is fine there's a lot of white people they know something's wrong, but they also just have no way to engage with it. And I, and it's like about feeling like what your role is in this. And my role is to try to figure out how to get those people ways to engage. So part of that is like being on the board of donors choose. Forget about like we're not going to talk about racism. We're talking about getting school kids what they need. Mm-hmm. And some of that is around equity. Mm-hmm. And some of that is about racism. But I'm going to get what, – don't you think school kids need to have lunch and have <laughs> snacks and right. have all the supplies they need? And I – you know – oh, come on. No, no, no. No, no, please. I've talked enough. Well – <laughs> but you know i think also i think with that like you know one thing we did in this book um your first assignment in this book is that you open up the book and there's a poster that pulls that you pull out that says and white supremacy right and it's got a perforated line and then mm-hmm. you read them you know it's got a thing on the back and it tells you like okay your first assignment is here mm-hmm. take out this poster and put it up somewhere really visible right maybe mm-hmm. it's your office maybe it's your apartment window you know maybe it's your your dorm room whatever um you know and and uh and also like fyi like that's not everything like that's just a sign that's page (laughs) one that's page one you know like a stop sign doesn't mean anything if you don't stop like it's just a (laughs) sign um so but but it's your first step right but but when we were putting this book together we actually initially were going to have the sign say black lives matter Mm. um and then at some point we were like that's we're like that that's actually just not enough right now like let's we we see those signs everywhere we we already like those those signs have become kind of you know normalized in in some let's be clear in some communities was that love laugh life those signs (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. live laugh you know and and yeah it's become live live, laugh love love. yeah it's yeah yeah. Yeah. So like for us, it was like, so to think of people with 
having this awakening, like, okay, you have the awakening, like, how can we, what do you need to be pushed a little further, right? right? Like, what can we do? So for us, I think putting, you know, having that poster be like, you know, let's, let's just go a little further. Right. <laughs> let's, uh, right. let's end white supremacy. And let's, let's see how comfortable, like, you got comfortable putting up the Black Lives Matter sign. Like, are you comfortable put, displaying this? Like, are you comfortable? Right, this? right, right. Yeah. And because, I mean, even that, even that sign, even though it's page one, for a lot of people, that probably represents like a pretty, that's pretty loud. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's kind of like negative. It's a little anti-white. It's a little like, do I want my uncle to see this or my neighbors to know that I'm like, you know. And if, um, you, and if you're afraid to do that, then you've learned something about yourself. Right, exactly. Yeah. Or about your situation. Or, or about, about, yeah, about your Or about your community yes. and or about yeah. your, you know, the situation you're in. But it did, it does make me think a lot about relationships in general. Um, you know, whenever harms have been committed, and I think we've all probably committed a harm and had a harm committed upon us by people that we are in continued community and relationship with. And one of the things that becomes necessary in order for that community to continue to coexist is for the, there needs to be healing and repair. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how you held the, 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 the notion of repair of harm when you were thinking of this book, right? Like, um, what does it mean to... Because like, if I, you know, I mean, I always think of the example, like, you know, if a tornado tears up your house... Um, it's not just enough to be like, isn't it great that the tornado's over? You now have to repair the house. And so I think a lot about the harm that collectively exists now from all of the of what's happened. So even if every white person today and every person who ever committed harm or every man were to suddenly from tomorrow's to be like, from now on, no more misogyny, you're never doing another patriarchal thing again, I'm done. Still, there's a lot of repair that needs to happen. And I wonder how you guys thought about that notion when you were working on this book. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think that, you know, I have to quote, as Kate has heard me do before, the uh, prophet Daniel Tiger. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Parents know what I'm talking about. uh, Who has the song saying, I'm sorry, is the first step. Then how can I help? Which we sing in my house every day. (laughs) And so for me, this book is about the like, the I'm sorry is like the very first beginning step of this, but this book is really focused on action and really focused on different types of action. So it's not just about writing a big check, but sometimes if you can write a big check, but it's also like writing the big check is not doing everything. So it's really like, there's a part in the book where in the beginning of the book, we say, look, we're going to lead you through a lot of activities and ideas and puzzles. But if you just want to get to the big list of actions you can take, that's (laughs) in the back of the book. And it's a huge, it's a huge fold out of the big list of actions you can take. Mm -hmm. And, and so for me, I think about it, like, it's like, it's like if you read a book about working out, you haven't really worked out. <laughs> so if you just read this book, you haven't really done the work. And I think the important thing, the, the thing that I want people to take away from this that I think is like anti-racism is a verb. You got to do it regularly and you got to, and you got to raise the stakes. Cause if you like run a mile every day, but you just run a mile, and you do it in the same time, you're not going to get better or faster running a mile. Mm. You have to up the stakes of, are you running faster? Am I running mm-hmm. uphill? I don't run at all. As you can tell. Um, so you have to get to a sense of like how to raise the stakes. And I know that from my own life, what that means. So like, I wasn't, you know, I, that I feel like, okay, if you look at United Shades episode one to this season, you can see that that guy's like, so this thing, we still have racism, huh? All right, let me try this. So episode one one is me meeting the KKK. Mm-hmm. We did an episode this year where I sat down with Kimberly Crenshaw, who's literally the person who's one people can't with critical race theory. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's not, I don't think talking to the Klan's going to do it. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I ever, I'm always trying to raise the stakes personally of how I engage with the conversation and how I bring the audience along. So I think that's the, it is definitely about the reparations. It is not just about the apology. Mm. And, you know, I think I thought a lot about that 
with this book. You know, I, and I think a lot about that in general, about about repair and about harm. Again, I think about that a lot as a parent, um, mm-hmm. but but I also think about it a lot with with white people, right? With which is the understanding of. Um, yeah, how to how to repair, how to and how to how to get out of your own way and get over yourself and your mm. own feelings about it. Um, and I think that in this book we did try. I think one of the fine lines that we were walking was also uh, uh, like not wanting to be coddling, right? Mm-hmm. But also not wanting to be too like strident, right? Like like wanting to acknowledge and really um, kind mm-hmm. of validate people's complicated and difficult emotions and mm-hmm. feelings around about around talking about race mm-hmm. and racism and white supremacy, including the feelings of white people, right? And this mm-hmm. is like that's really delicate because we have so much white fragility and like the white tears and right and like wanting to not to center white tears and white emotions around this, but also not to completely erase the fact that they exist. Well, that, I mean that. Not to, that, that sort of, to me, is like the key thing about this book is that everyone, if you have caused harm, you need a space to process your stuff. That space probably shouldn't be in the same room with the people that you harmed. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the tricky, th- so th- th- those things need to coexist. So that's one of the tricky things about this book is that it feels to me, if I was a white person, I'd probably need to do a lot of talking about stuff because I, 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 I would have been at this racism thing a long time. And so, but you're making a book that is in public and I just wondered, I mean, this is kind of what you're getting at, but I wondered whose space you considered this, the book. Like, whose space is it? Mm. Oh, that's good. What do you mean, I, I, what do you mean exactly whose Damn, space? don't make me say it, because it was so good the first time. It was so good. <laughs> I, I just didn't know what it meant. But then I was but... like, it's got, it, turned, it turned into like a Zen cone. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, for me, this is definitely, I mean, I don't know if this is definitely a book about community. I don't think doing this book by yourself is really going to do as much as if yeah. you do it with other people. Interesting. I think there's an aspect of this where we do and we have partner activities in the book and we say find a friend or we say act out this thing. So I think for me, the you know, we're not going to end racism as individuals. We're not going to dismantle white supremacy mm. as individuals. It has to happen in community. And I think this book is encouraging of you building community in ways that maybe you hadn't before you picked mm. up this book. So I think about my my mother-in-law has four copies of the book. I hope that means she's doing it with four people in her life, right. friends of hers, because – she need those people who don't normally have conversations about race and racism and don't normally think about what actions can we take need to do that in community. It's right. not something you can do by yourself. Mm. Right. And I, I think, I mean, I hear you with that question and I think I, that, that idea of like going and processing all of your hard feelings, but like being conscious of where you're doing it and who you're doing it with and who you're doing it in front of. I think that we, we try in this book, to do a lot of also like directing people out of the book, uh-huh. um, not just in terms of like, you know, actions you can take, but other things you can read mm-hmm. or things you can listen to. So we have a lot of little kind of like insets in, in different sections. It's like to learn more, check out this book. Like actually, you know what? Cause we do, we have a page, a section about apologizing, right? And mm-hmm. how do you actually, what is a real good apology? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not an expert on that. Like mm-hmm. go read this book on apology. Like go read, you know, go read this book on like, you know, on, on somatic trauma and racism. Like there's, there's so many, we're not the experts in so much of this. Um, mm-hmm. And so I did really want to try to redirect people as much as possible um, to, and I think, I think of those things as potential spaces for people to be 
processing some of the feelings that are coming up, like whether it's podcasts or books or right. films. And the book is like by nature collaborative and has other voices in it. That's there's, what I was doing. Yeah. yeah, there's like f- over 50 <coughs> artists who collaborated, artists, illustrators, and graphic designers, all of whom are artists of color or black or indigenous. Yeah. So it's a way that even the book in its work is trying to make sure that like we're bringing in other voices from these impacted communities to help address these subjects. Because if you just hand it to a publisher and say, find me an illustrator, it's going to be an old white guy. It just is. And we wanted to make sure that that was not the case. Yeah. Well, it kind of reminds me of, you know, I mean, if you've like read Emergent Strategy, it's kind of like, it sort of reminds me of the whole notion of like, you know, we're taught to do, think of everything individualistically. So not just like, like it would make sense that people would be like, yes, I need to go somewhere and heal my racism and thusly go out and then be a beacon for the healing of racism. Um, similarly, we're taught to think of our creative acts as being solo acts. Like I got the book contract, I'm getting the check. Never mind the fact that like every idea I have is from something that someone told me or a couple of things or me, but I'm still, it's still my book. It's my name on it. So collectively as a culture, we have this idea of like solo independent stuff. And the book I think really works well to like counter that, that this is a group project. Racism is a group project. That's what makes America so difficult to begin with. It's a group project with 450 million people or whatever the number is. It's a lot of people to do a group project with. That's why we struggle so much. But the healing does have to be a group project. Um, and I, yeah, I guess I just want to hear you guys talk about how you carried this notion of community through the book as you were thinking of it and working on it. Mm. Well, like Kamal said, um, you know, I mean, we, we, we did like we put in our contract i mean the illustrators that we wanted to work with and the other people that we wanted to have on the team um you know kind of we stipulated we wanted to have a black woman in an editorial position we wanted to have a black woman as a graphic designer um and and it, and it wasn't you know we actually had that written into the contract so that mm. they couldn't uh yeah they couldn't you know, be like we fought, we looked we, we tried <laughs> um you know and uh you know but also again we <coughs> we i think both of us in our work i think come out with united shades and i really with all of the rad women books like I, we are really comfortable relying on the expertise of other people mm. um, and like really actually excited about that and, and learning and crediting people. them and paying them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of that. We brought in a lot of other people who know way more about us. Um, and we also really made sure to include their names and to credit them um, and to pay them and to give them space in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was, that was a hugely important part of this. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of people are like Fabiana Rodriguez is in here. She's mm-hmm. illustrated. Mm-hmm. Doctor Nikki Jones from Cal Berkeley has it is in here talking about the history of policing. So there's a there's just I feel like we both have these sort of rolodexes, not literally because we're not from the past, <laughs> but like <laughs> we know a lot of people and have collaborated with a lot of people and have learned from a lot of people. And then you get excited about oh, we can I can put this person in here. I can like Nikki Jones. I met at a town hall meeting in Berkeley about getting kicked out of a coffee shop, and then I put Nikki mm-hmm. on United Shades, and now she's mm-hmm. in the book. So it's this idea of like always trying to promote the people who you've come across in your path who you feel like are already doing the work. Yeah. I mean, the design, the artwork is so important to this book. I mean, it's obviously essential. It's, it's literally an art book. And I, I just want to hear you guys talk a little bit about um, how the work came about, particularly the fonts, which I was really struck by. They're so beautiful. Oh, um, so, and uh, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that aspect of putting this together? Did you see how excited I got when you said you, font? Yeah, really excited. Yeah, when it comes to fonts, I, I stand down. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's on fonts. Well, fonts. So for one, so we, the, so we worked with our creative director. Our art director was Diane Holton, who is um, mm. incredible. And so she's, our, um, and she's based in D.C. And she commissioned mm-hmm. all the art. 
um, and all the artists in there. And then they're all people that she had worked with. And she actually works for, she works for AARP. Um, she's always jokes. She's like yeah, the youngest person yeah, at yeah. AARP. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, but she, her, her mission as a black woman in graphic design, like a big part of her work is bringing in young artists of color. Um, and so she has, she has the Rolodex of incredible people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, and so I, <coughs> the font, the font here is, um, this is called Baird and it's a uh, designed by Trey Seals who has a, who's a black typographer and his company's called Vocal Type. Mm-hmm. Um, and he actually turns out to be a friend of Diane's, but I had suggested this and he uh, does um, different, different fonts based on um, historic civil rights activists. Um, and he does an unbelievable. Is that Bayard Rustin? Yeah. So it's oh, a Bayard wow. Rustin font and, it, and, <laughs> and the font, the, 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 the type comes from the signage used in the 1963 March on Washington, wow. which, which Rustin was one of the organizers of. Wow. Um, and, uh, and so he um, he's got there's a there's a Martin Luther King font there's a Chavez font I mean he's got an incredible amount of fonts and he woke has fonts. so much woke fonts really but he does so much <laughs> but he does so much incredible research but that was a big part you know and we also like mentioned it early on in the book you know we're like by the way the font that you're looking at is you know based on Bayard Rustin and he was a gay black man and a civil rights organizer and so like at any level that we could we wanted to bring in um, other people and have everything have as much kind of uh, meaning as possible because I think and I to, to me that was also about modeling like you know when it comes to this idea of doing the work right there's so many different layers and levels and ways that we can get at that and like I think folks might not think of like the font selection for your book as as being part of that, pick but... like papyrus or something, and just keep it. <laughs> no, Comic Sans, <laughs> yeah. papyrus and Comic Sans—the hardest to read book in the history of books. Um, so we're going to turn the uh, we're going to turn it over to the questions from the floor. Um, I haven't had a chance to read all of these yet, so hopefully none of them are insane. But um... can I can I do a quick commercial? Please do. So uh, as we talk about doing the work, and I feel like a responsibility to do the work, and always try to figure out new ways to do the work, and like right now. Uh, there is about, I don't know when this is going to air, but for the people who are watching online, the people in this room, there's about to be a runoff election in Georgia. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, and the three scariest words in the English language are Senator Herschel Walker. <laughs> so I am doing a thing with a bunch of other uh, uh, moderately famous celebrities where we're trying to raise $100,000 for that runoff, and it all goes to activist organizations of color in Georgia on ground doing the work. Uh so we're about halfway there to $100,000, and we're trying to do this in the next day or so. So, And if we do it, I and, and a bunch of other celebrities who are more famous than me, including Padma Lakshmi, are going to do the one chip challenge, which is this chip right here, which is like <laughs> the hottest chip you can eat, and uh, ruin my bowel intestinal tract. Uh, wow. so and we'll do it online. So if you would like to see me hurt myself for democracy, uh, <laughs> please donate at 51seats.com. 51seats.com. There we go. That's my commercial. Oh, good plug. Wait, there's a chip wow. in there? There's a chip in here that you have to use like gloves to take out of here. Yeah. It's like you can't get it on your fingers, but yeah. you you're going to put it in your mouth? Yeah. Yeah. For you for democracy. For democracy. Yeah. The things we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um well on that note this was like a great way to transition to the first question. Are we making progress? <laughs> that's in it. W- that's the question. In what? I feel like this I is mean, one of those like I feel like very like President Clinton. What's the definition of progress? <laughs> <laughs> the definition of is. I really, is. Yeah. What the yeah. De- what's the definition? <laughs> I think that w- if this was, I feel like in high school debate you learn you can't have a debate unless you know the definition of the terms. Oof. So what's the definition of progress? And I think that like uh, whatever whatever we're doing, we're not we're not making en- enough progress. Mm. 
So I think the idea of being like, I, I, I hesitate to say, it's just like when people ask me in the gym when I'm naked, like, are things better than I think they are? No, they're not. <laughs> like, and so I think that like, there are definitely wins. And even in the midterms, there was like, it was like, yay. Mm. But, I, <laughs> but I think if we're still going, yay, that's not enough progress. So I think that like, for me, that you have to, you know, certainly we live, uh, I assume everybody here lives in the Bay or lives in San Francisco. You can look around this city and see that we're not making enough progress. Mm. So I yeah. think that, like, I hesitate to ever say that, like, relax. Now, that doesn't mean you can't take a break, sit down for a while, let your feet, let your feet calm down, and then get back to work. But I don't think we want to say we're making progress. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. I would also nitpick at that in a loving way, whoever wrote the question. <laughs> job. Um, but, uh, but also, like, who's the we? Right, like Ooh, I think that's it, yeah. The definition of we. Well, it depends on who you talk to, because there's a lot of motherfuckers out there that are making progress, and it's not the kind of progress that I want to see. You know, <laughs> is like, Elon Musk in the city now? Yeah, that's, I just sorry, I keep swearing, and I probably shouldn't, but I'm sorry. But it's <laughs> you know, it's the times. We swear a lot in this book too. We couldn't mm-hmm. help it. Um, um, but you know, I, again, I think there's the uh, like I don't know what the what the we is. You know, I think yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Who's we? You know, define and, we, define progress, define our. Yeah, define yeah, making. Yeah, you know, and like I mean, we woke up today. You know, <coughs> yeah, we all managed to wake right. up today. We all managed to wake up alive. We all managed to be here. You know, we all managed. Right. You know, that's that's progress. I mean, we are literally, you know, moving forward. Uh, each day. Well, it's interesting because there's, there's another question here that actually that's the smartest I, thing I've ever said. Each day. No, no, no. no, no, no. I, it was the it was your exhaustion at like <laughs> each day. day. We yeah. woke up again. Here we are. No, but there's another question here that actually suggests asks, and I'm paraphrasing here, but what would happen if you replaced the word progress or the word optimism with hope? And that makes me think more about, um, you know, when I asked that first question about optimism, it's like. You say, everyone says, no, I don't have enough optimism. Okay, but you got up and wrote this book. Yeah. So clearly you thought that it mattered. Like, yeah. to be truly without optimism is to say, like, I'm not writing this fucking book because it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. No yeah. one's going to, yeah. this, everything sucks. I don't need to be here. I think and that's so, nihilism, though, right? Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. that, that, to have that is nihilism. So to not have that is what? Like, anti-nihilism? I mean, that's what I mean. Like, yeah. I, I, what I'm getting at that I think the people who ask this question about are we making progress? Is everything going okay? Part of that's because as a culture, we're addicted to happy endings and positive stuff. Don't get me started on the Hayes Code. I have a whole theory about that, but I'm not going to go into that now. But, um, but we're, as a culture, we're addicted to this idea that like some, we got to have proof that stuff is good and it's going to be good and we're, good guys are going to win in the end. Otherwise, what's the point? And while I think we overly rely on that, I do think it's important to feel like the work I'm going to do is going to matter. Yeah, because it's really hard, and it's hard to do if you don't think it's going to matter. And I seems like both of you believe that the work that you're doing, at the very least, has the possibility enough to matter that you get up doing it. That's the the possibility to matter. I think if you get caught up in the work matters, now you're in your now you'd be in your ego. Yeah, right. Okay. So I think that like I mean, as you were saying that, I was thinking about like you know people in Martin Luther King Jr. Day often do the I have a dream speech because that's a fun one. But like I think about that speech the night before he was assassinated yeah. where almost the look in his eye was like, yeah, it's coming. Everybody. Yeah. Like he's that's like, he said, I may not get there with you. Yeah. And when we talk about this book, often I say whenever I, you know, you talked about when things are hard sometimes, Kate, and I feel like when I have like, man, it's so hard to, to have a, to a TV show and direct a documentary, I feel like the ghost of Harriet Tubman's like, really? <laughs> oh, is it hard? Oh, you having a hard time? And so for me, I think perspective helps in this sort of like, I'm, it, so, but I also think that like, you have to like, 
you have to believe the worth has a possibility of mattering, which is what keeps you doing the work. Yeah. And I think that, you know, but you can't think that the work matters because, again, that's when you get caught up in your mm. ego. And I don't, and that my ego does not help me in that way. So, yes. I And also, it's just, it's part and parcel. I'll speak, for, I'll, I'll take the black conch for a second, then I'll hand it back to you. <laughs> it's part and parcel being a black person in this country that you have to sort of get out of bed and do the thing. Like you can't sort of, I don't think we can really throw that responsibility away, especially those of us who are in positions of privilege like I am, you know, I can't be like, oh, it's going to be fine or, oh, you know, you have to sort of go, no, 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 I have to do this work for the people who can't, don't have the ability or the the breath in their life to do this work. And, you know, I think while we're talking about Dr. King, I know I, 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 I I do have a lot of hope and maybe, maybe it's like, I don't, I, there's probably a lot of really smart stuff that's been said about the difference between optimism and hope. Right. I, I, I feel more comfortable kind of claiming hope. Mm -hmm. Um, but I also like think that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, but it doesn't bend on its own. Right. (laughs) It does, you know, like it it gets bent towards justice. I like, I kind of, sometimes I kind of have a act, like I have an actual thing that I imagine in my head, which is that we're just like hanging on yeah. and forcing it to bend. Like right. I, it's not, it's not naturally bending and yeah. it has a lot of forces pushing it back. And That's I think right. when we do think about progress, um, you know, and if we're talking about the progress that is like equity and equality and a, and a world where everybody is free and loved and safe. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's not, everything's happening all at once, right? Maybe mm-hmm. it's that. It's like everything, everywhere, all at once, right? <coughs> there, yes, there are things that are happening that are that are moving us toward that. And then there's counter forces happening at the exact same time, right? Like we have like a number of the like leaders of the Oath Keepers who are actually conv- being convicted and being found guilty at the same time as, again, Trump is sitting down and having mm-hmm. like chill dinner with like leading Holocaust deniers, right? Like this is, these things are happening at once. And I think that we, uh, you know, and I, I think sometimes the, sometimes we get too scared that if we're like, we're making progress, then everybody will like rest mm-hmm. kind of chill, you know? And like, it's like when you're, if I'm going back to this, like pulling mm-hmm. on this arc, mm-hmm. like it's like when you're mm-hmm. in the tug of war and you're mm-hmm. like, cool, we're winning. Like, mm-hmm. and you kind of let go <laughs> and suddenly everybody falls over. Um, um this is uh, this might be the last question, depending on how long it takes to answer, but it's an interesting one. Was there any point in co-creating the book that you were at odds? Oh, yeah. And if so, what did you do to work through it? People really want that to be the case. I know. People, they do, they no, do. they they really want us to have had like a really big thing, yeah. like that I said something terrible, and then you yeah. know. Um, did you have to cancel each other at any point? Right. Yeah. No. Any I mean, it's funny. Like, we've <laughs> known each other for several years now, and we met I sort of in some sense. I I sort of heard about the book, Right American Women, before I met Kate. And so, like, there was already this thing that was like, this is a person wrote this, and, and Miriam illustrated this. So, and then, you know, she knew me through my work. And we've also, as parents and as sort of East Bay, mm-hmm. you know, woke parent, I'm just going to use work, woke a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's take it back. I'm taking, I, I do feel like I'm, if, if we're not going to throw it away, I'm going to take it back. Um, <laughs> So, like, yeah, I mean, there was the tension was in creating the book. There was not a moment where I was like, Kate, I can't believe you would say that about. I can't even think of a thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> for some reason, all I had in my head were good times references, and I didn't think this was the crowd for those. Um, so, yeah, like, I just can't, like, I, there was not a point at which we had, like, a, like, I mean, yes, when we make the TV movie about the writing of this book, there will be a point where we'll have a. You have a, to, yeah, the writers the, will demand it. The lifetime movie yeah. about the writing of the book, but. We were, it, the, it's, I mean, to me, it's like, we, it also, I think it's about the era, COVID, the pandemic hitting hard, right. lockdown, Trump, 
like the you're watching the world burn down in real time on television george floyd it's like it's like when fire when firefighters are putting out a fire did you guys have any beef when you're putting out the fire no we were trying to put out the fire right. you know what i mean so right. i think that's our thing but we were so focused on the book and also the world and just grateful to be able to have this to have this thing that we could do and, and figure out while the world was burning down we had a thing we thought was going to be helpful there was not i can't think of a moment of like i don't i'm not talking to kate today like there was just like uh-huh. yeah and I think I think we also we both really like to collaborate also, yeah. and I think we're both really comfortable collaborators. And you are you are an excellent collaborator. And I think so. I think maybe there would be times where I'd have an idea and he was not entirely convinced, mm-hmm. you know. But he's so good at like giving me the space to work that out, you know. And similarly, so if I came up with something that I was really attached to, he was kind of like, okay, well, you know, work, yeah, no, there was definitely like, out and like, I don't know what you're talking about, but good luck. <laughs> I, I look forward to the Google Doc. You know what I mean? Like there was, yeah. yeah, I think that's how I've learned how to be. And you're a great collaborator too. Like I don't think we would have done this if we didn't already sort of trust that was the case. And also, I think we're both really comfortable in saying like, I don't know, or you take this one, mm-hmm. or or uh, this makes I'm confused here. We're really comfortable with the ways of talk of communicating that mm-hmm. in, that in that creates more collaboration, not less. I'm, I'm going to just ask one more that has kind of been on my mind, which is. Um, how did writing this book change change you or help you grow or what did you learn from it? Mm. Oh, you give it to me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it, uh, you know, I mean, this is, maybe this is like a, this is a little bit of ego moment, but, uh, you know, it, it, it made me feel really comfortable with humor, mm. uh, and, which is not, has not been a huge part of my writing. Mm. Um, I mean, I, you know, like writing a book like this with an actual professional comedian, like it, there'd be times when I would, I would like think of a joke and write it and I'd be like, um, so, you know, then, and then he'd laugh and I'd be like, oh, sweet. So, so, no, no, no. The thing that professional comedians do is like, that's funny. Uh, yeah. No, yeah. That's how you know it's really funny. Yeah. yeah. Say that's funny. So I was like, oh, that's, oh, that's really funny, kid. But no. So that's. Because you're a little bit angry that you didn't think of something funnier. So that's. Or, or, or even oh, so now you're going to write funny now. Okay. All right. Even better would be when I, when we were, because we wrote it, we wrote it so collaboratively that sometimes we wouldn't totally know who had written what. And so sometimes I would, there's a few times where I think I wrote the joke and then you would kind of like. You'd be like, oh, yeah, that was good. I wrote that. I was like. <laughs> really? Did I do that? Uh, Which one? I don't know. <laughs> okay. I mean, it, believe me, my wife, Melissa, a lot of times people are like, I love that thing in your act. And I'm like, thank you. She's like, I wrote that. <laughs> like, I don't remember that. <laughs> um, no, so that was, that was actually my, my silly answer. But actually, no, a, a sincere answer. Um, and I don't know if this is something that necessarily changed me. Mm. or But but maybe something that I, I realized that was. Um, that. <sighs> I d- when we went on book tour, um, we did a whole bunch of events all around the country and, and, you know, would get up and have these conversations. And I felt very, I think I felt very surprised by the reaction that I got, in particular from black women in audiences. Mm. Um, that was a very consistent, um, and, and I want to be really careful here, this is not to say that every black woman that came and saw us thought I, I was great, but I got so many women, or so many black women specifically, like, thanking me for getting up and talking honestly about being a white person and doing this work and, 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 and kind of saying, you know, basically saying like, I've never seen any, a white person talk about it like this Mm -hmm. before. Like, Mm -hmm. thank you. And it wasn't like, Mm -hmm. you're so great or Mm -hmm. you're really funny or you're brilliant. It was like, I've never seen a white lady do that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And, and I say that because I, that surprised me and it pissed me off and it Mm -hmm. made me, it re, Mm -hmm. 
it reminded me and reaffirmed how incredibly low the bar is for white people, um, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to speaking publicly or acting publicly or, or like conversing about this. Like, like the fact that like I just got up and did it and someone was like, oh my God, I've never seen that. Like that mm-hmm. doesn't mean that I was brilliant or articulate or mm-hmm. exceptional. It's just the fact that I actually did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that was a real reminder of how important it is um, to just open your mouth and, 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 to, and to talk and to acknowledge it. Um, so that, 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 that has stuck with me a lot. Hmm. I think the, you know, the, the thing that has been the most satisfying for me is not the people who get the book, who the book was for and who appreciate it. It's hearing from activists who I respect say, no, you actually did something here. Mm. Like we had, like we, Mark Lamont Hill, we talked to him in, in Philly and he gave us this, it's one of those, he, he talked about the book in a way I'm like, what book is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and there's been other activists who were like, and people who were like, I was suspicious and then I actually flipped mm-hmm. through it. So I, the fact that the activist community who doesn't necessarily need this, even though there might be things right. in there. And, feel, and who is quite critical and because they've seen a lot of BS. Who can't wait to tear apart. They can't wait to tear it apart. And I knew yeah, that and I respect yeah, that. That's how you do it. You tear it apart. <laughs> But that there have been a lot that have been several activists who have seen the book and like, you know, I sent it to Kimberly Crenshaw and activists uh. and academics who really appreciate it and feel like this is this book is doing something that other books in this space don't do. Uh. Uh, and then the other thing that is that has changed my life is is the all the various places I find it in bookstores shelved. That is like I'm like sports. Really? Uh, <laughs> 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 anti-racism to sport uh, we're losing we're down by a lot of points <laughs> but that the that the people whose work that has inspired me to do my work actually feel like this book is is doing something okay uh i just realized we're past time and i, I was supposed to ask one question that's on here that i didn't ask um so i'm gonna ask it real quick what is your 30 second idea to change the world oh <laughs> sorry that's oh. what they don't oh yeah you, uh, you know Please go first. Come it on. says here, it, it literally says here, Kate, let's start with you. <laughs> literally what's um, on the script. My 30 second idea to change the world um, is to, uh, to give a shit about something and to be willing to take some kind of risk mm. uh, in your pursuit of that thing. Boom. You get full snap for retweet. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like it's, a, it's the same thing. Like set. It's a, Set a goal to make the world a better place and regularly increase that goal. Mm. Like, that's, yeah, that's it. All right. I want to thank you guys so much for coming out tonight. Uh, Our thanks to Kamal Bell and Kate Schatz, authors of Do the Work, an anti-racist activity book. And especially thanks for all of you guys tonight. We encourage everyone to buy a copy of Do the Work here or at your local bookstore, including Marcus Books in Oakland, the oldest black-owned bookstore in the country. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making both virtual and in-person programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. Thank you, and take care. Have a good night. Thank you, Cordell. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.